welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here. Uh, confession, we, we have this meeting af- uh, just before we actually begin the gathering um, where all of our team comes together in the back and we kind of run through uh, transitions and all of that and then we pray together. And as I was walking around this corner, I was like, dear God, help there be more than just Jim. <laughs> And there was. By the way, it's Jim's 31st birthday today. Everyone wants to give him a round of applause. Um, As as Cole said, there has been so much has gone into us seeing this um, become a reality in our community. This has been uh, something that we've desired and that a lot of people have asked for for years. Um, And there's a lot of, you know, maneuvering the Lord's timing, maneuvering our... Uh, comfortability with who we've been called to be. You know, we've been in this building for almost a year now, and this was one of many types of new endeavors that we wanted to start um, with having a building. And praise the Lord that it's finally happening, and to see all of you here just authenticates that this is, this is the right direction, that we're moving uh, in the way that the Lord wants us to be. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, this week has been um, so up and down, uh, just trying to make this a reality. And I just want to affirm anyone who has uh, been part of this, whether you have been praying for us, whether you've been helping Cole establish this kind of new feel in the building itself, um, doing lyrics, putting together songs, all of this, uh, you know, to compound things from Tuesday, I have had the flu. (laughs) So I've been sitting on my couch, kind of half aware of what's going on in the world around me and trying to like orchestrate some of these other things, and I'm still, I'm about 85% right now. Um, And you know when there's those sicknesses where your voice gets like real deep and low and contemplative, and that's kind of what you want. And then there's that other one where you're just like speaking out of your nose, and it betrays all too well that you went to middle school in Michigan, you know? So that's how I feel, so I'm very sorry. So Val, with the podcast, if you can like bring my, you know, vocal tone down just a little bit so I sound a bit deeper. Um, That would be wonderful. Um, So today, not only are we starting our first morning gathering, but we're also starting a new series, and this new series is called Form. It's called Form, and this is going to be about taking the shape of Jesus. Um, We really want to focus for several months on this idea of spiritual formation. What is that actual process of growing spiritually, of maturing? And what is it that God expects of us? You know, sometimes we can talk about the things that we believe, but sometimes we can talk about the way in which we hold those beliefs and how that transforms us and changes us. And so over this next several months, of course, we'll be talking in some ways about what it is that we believe as Christians, but we really want to focus on the way in which we believe in those things. Over the past several months, I've had um, amazing um, interactions with some people in our community talking about this idea of spiritual growth. And for many of you, um, the old ways of believing and the old things that you've been, you've been grown, or that you have grown up believing about God don't quite seem to fit the bill anymore. And you're almost crying out for some new way of believing, something that, that draws life back into the process of faith. For many of us, there's this fear of growth, of moving from one season in our lives to the next, where if we could kind of freeze everything in a specific moment when we felt confident, when we felt like we had it all together, when we felt like we knew how the world works and we knew who we were and we knew exactly what God was like, if we could just freeze everything in that moment, then it'd be well. But guess what? Life 
happened. Something changed. Something shifted. Something happened to us, or we entered into a new season of life, and there was something about that old way of believing that doesn't quite fit the bill anymore. And I want us to talk about that process. What does it look like for us to grow, to be formed into the likeness of Christ, and what does that really look like? And so we're going to be focusing in for these next several months on this idea of spiritual formation. And kind of as our theme, um, we want to be using this uh, single verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 18. And it goes like this. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what I want to do tonight is to take this verse and really break it down into its fundamental elements and kind of allow that to be a trajectory for where it is that we go over the next several months. So if you would just pray with me and especially pray for me, um, I I think the Lord has some really beautiful things in store for us tonight, this morning. See, even those things, those kind, (laughs) right? We're we're retraining our brains here. Um, So Heavenly Father, we testify that you are here, that you are with us, Um, Lord, we testify, especially this morning, that you have already gone before us and you have made straight these paths, Um, that we are just following in the footsteps that you have already laid out, Lord, that there has been um, prophetic word after word that this is a place that you were calling our community to be, a new opportunity to open up and to love our city well. Lord, we thank you for the honor that it is to come alongside of you in rescuing this world, in restoring this world, in seeing the city of Orlando become a bastion of heaven. And so, Father, this morning, as we really hone in on the words of your servant, Paul, Lord, I pray that you would give each of us a compass for these next several months. And that compass is for us to contemplate the face of Christ that whatever we experience, whatever we encounter, whatever questions begin to well up within us, whatever old ways of thinking or believing begin to crumble and beg for new ways of thinking and believing, that as we focus on you, as we see the face of Christ ever before us, it gives us trajectory. It gives us direction. It gives us hope that all things become blessings when they draw us deeper into your embrace. And that's what we ask for this morning and for this next series, Lord. May all things be unto your glory. And may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so Paul writes uh, this verse in a much larger passage where he's talking about the greater glory of the new covenant. Paul is the kind of ground zero for where we find this discussion about what, what was God doing in the old covenant and what is it that he's doing in the new. And so in this passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul is, is kind of pleading with the Corinthians again to come back to this new way of thinking, this new reality that God has laid out in Christ Jesus. He begins this passage of saying, are we to commend ourselves to you all over again, that you need some sort of letter of recommendation?" And he turns that around on them and he says, you're our letter of recommendation. You're the evidence that God is doing something through our ministry. And so he goes back to the Old Testament and he begins to speak 
about Moses and the Israelites and that old covenant and kind of the attitude by which Israel held that old covenant. And then he brings it into this verse. And I just wanted to read it again before we step into it. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And this verse sums up his argument so well because it's as much about our relationship with one another in the context of God as it is about our relationship with God himself. And so here we find that beautiful Trinitarian image of God and me and you and the circuit of relationship that God begins to establish in his people as we're transformed into the image of Christ. And what I hope that we find today is that Christ becomes the center of that Trinitarian image. And so we're going to break it down into these four essential parts of the the verse and dig in a little bit deeper. So let's begin with the first one. And we all who with unveiled faces. We're going to be looking at two short passages in the book of Exodus that speak about this first interaction that God has with Israel. God has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and they're walking through the desert on their way to the promised land. And I've talked often that one of my favorite things about this story is that Israel is constantly coming to God with Moses as their mediator and saying, okay, promised land, got it. Okay, what's it going to look like? What can we expect? Who's there? What are the dimensions? And God says, I'm with you. And Israel says, yeah, yeah, okay, we get that. But seriously, what, is, what do we expect? What are the dimensions? Like, what's it going to look like? And God says, no, 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 seriously, I'm, I'm with you. And Israel says, yeah, okay, we heard you the first time, Yahweh. What does it look like? And how often are we like that when we hear the promised land, when we know that there's some sort of fulfillment to the promises that God has given us, and we want to know the dimensions. We want to know the descriptors so that we'll know it when we see it. But what God is continually inviting us to in the response of saying, I'm with you, is that if we don't understand first and foremost that God is with us, it doesn't matter what the promised land looks like. Amen? It doesn't matter. In fact, I would say that it's not the promised land if we don't understand first and foremost that God is with us. This is the promise upon which all of the other promises hinge. And so what we find is that Israel is kind of wandering through the desert and they bump into this mountain on Mount Sinai and God invites them up onto the top of the mountain. So we're going to be jumping in in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in the 18th verse. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And this is my favorite verse in the Old Testament. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I love that verse. You see, Israel bumps into the mountain, and whatever that God is up there, he's a little too much for me to handle. I I don't quite know. I don't have a category for that. I don't have a box for that. And so rather than going up there myself, I need someone to do it for me. I need someone to go on my behalf and then translate God for me and then give it to me in more digestible elements. And I love that Moses is the one that's willing not to step into necessarily revelation, but to step into mystery into the thick 
darkness where God is because sometimes God is in the thick darkness. Sometimes God is in the uncharted place. Sometimes God is in the mystery. And so Moses, being obedient to God, but also being the leader of his people, marches up onto that mountain for several days. And this is the place where he receives the Ten Commandments. And he kind of goes back and forth between the people and God, beginning to form this foundation of the law that God establishes, the, 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 the law, the Mosaic law that God establishes with his people that has kind of this twofold uh, purpose. It's to, to rehabilitate Israel to rehumanize them, to, to remove their slave mentality and to give them back their humanity, but also to condition them for that priesthood that he had promised through Abraham, that he was going to use Israel to be those kind of mediators between God and all of mankind to bring them all back into his good graces. And so in Exodus 34, we find Moses coming down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments in hand, and it says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. One of the, this is totally nerdy little aside, but maybe some of you that really love theology will appreciate this. In Latin, the, the word for uh, rays of light is also the word for horns. So sometimes you'll see these old classical images of Moses where he has like little horns on his head which is absolutely fascinating that that would be the mistranslation. So it's like he, came, he, was, he was not aware that his face was horned. Is this kind of what it means in the Latin? But it's this, these rays of light because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. After all, the Israelites came near to him. He gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites that he had been commanded, he saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. And so not only could the Israelites not handle the God who was on top of the mountain, but even the radiance of someone who had been in the presence of the divine was intimidating to them. The people could not handle what we call the glory, the manifest presence of God radiating off of the face of Moses. They still needed that separation. Not only did they need a mediator between them and God, but they also needed some sort of a veil between the face of him who had been in God's presence and themselves. And so this, this veil comes to symbolize Israel's apprehension, their fear of intimacy with God. And it makes me wonder, how was God first presented to you? Were you afraid? Were you intimidated? You know, I grew up in the church, as many of you did, and I remember even at the beginning, God being kind of first this literary character, um, sort of that, that eye in the sky, a little bit more like Zeus maybe up on top of a mountain or a cloud, and a little bit intimidating. And I didn't quite know what to do with that God, even from a young age. I think that God, that Old Testament God, can make so many of us feel nervous, feel apprehensive, feel like we need something to, to protect us from him. 
something to cover over our shame, our feelings of inadequacy, because that God is so brilliant, so big, so incomprehensible. But I know at the same point, the more that I began to encounter the person of Jesus, it wasn't a person that I had apprehension towards. It wasn't somebody I was afraid of. But the character of Jesus was actually someone who drew me in. The character of Jesus, mysterious as he is, was attractive and appealing. I was nervous about the God on top of a mountain, but I was very attracted to Jesus. And so our pursuit of intimacy is the beginning of transformation. And I think this is what we find in the image of Christ. Through Christ, we have this new invitation to intimacy. You know, we have this other story in Matthew chapter 5 where, again, Israel gathers at the foot of a mountain to hear the voice of God. But in Exodus, where they're apprehensive and afraid of the God on the mountain, they, they gather around Jesus eager to hear what he has to say. And it's there that Jesus begins to recapitulate the Ten Commandments, to breathe new life into the law. Indeed, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we see that new uh, desire within the people of God who hear his voice to come close to him. That's so good. But that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's Mount Sinai all over again, but now there's this expectation for intimacy. And what do we find even at the end of the story with, with Jesus' crucifixion, that the moment that Jesus breathes his last and says, it is finished, the veil that stood in the holy of holies that hid where God is supposed to be and the rest of the people was cleft in twain, as the King James says. It was rent. It was ripped in two from top to bottom. And that veil was removed because the way to God had now been opened up by Christ. And so we, who with unveiled faces, that there is now nothing separating us from God, from the divine. We don't have to be afraid of who he is anymore because the veil has been removed. And we also don't have to seek counterfeit sources of intimacy that either stagnate our growth, they become a replacement for growth, or that they lead us astray. There's this beautiful quote by Henry Now, and he says this, when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. You see, we who with unveiled faces finally have the opportunity to plug into the source of all life, which is God as he actually is. And that kind of intimacy gives us the confidence to step into the transformative process of spiritual formation. Not attaching our confidence to something in a moment that is false, that keeps us from growing, that makes us rigid and unmoving, but actually gives us the flexibility and the flow to be able to maneuver through life with the kind of confidence that comes knowing God is with us and for us. And so the first part, we who with unveiled faces, the second part, contemplate the Lord's glory. Contemplate 
the Lord's glory. Now, Paul begins to use mirror language. We find in other translations this word contemplate is sometimes reflect. Or it might say, behold as in a mirror. And I love this mirror language, this contemplate, behold imagery, but also this reflect and reveal imagery. Because contemplating the Lord's glory is our response to being unveiled. Now we can look directly at him. Now we don't have to be so afraid. And so where there's an invitation from intimacy to contemplate his glory, to behold his beauty, to look on the beautiful face of Christ. The Christian mystics call contemplation the prayer of the heart, where we contemplate the face of Christ. And it's less about talk, prayer, as talk and conversation about making our demands and hoping that someone hears us. It's less about analyzing the face of Christ and kind of trying to understand what God is like, but it's that prayer of the heart where we sit in silence and just gaze at his beauty as he gazes right back at us. That kind of contemplation is what is opened up for us when we have unveiled faces. Because God is mirrored in Christ. Paul uses this mirror language elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, for now, in this present moment, in this present world, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, speaking about the end of all things, we shall know face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And this is the mystery of Jesus as we contemplate his glory. Jesus is 100% at the center of God. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. The God that Israel was so intimidated about at the foot of Mount Sinai looked like Jesus even then. God did not change his character in order to meet us. God has always looked like that. We just didn't always understand it in that way. And so when we look at the face of Christ, we look at the face of God 100%. But Jesus is also 100% at the center of the human experience. You want to know what it looks like to be human? Look at Christ. You want to know what it looks like to be whole and complete? Look at Christ. You want to know what it looks like to suffer well? Look at Christ. You want to know what it looks like to have true joy? Look at Christ. You know, we speak about Jesus being 100% God and 100% man as if it's some sort of clinical uh, equation that just proves that he's God. But when we contemplate, when we make that a cry of the heart, that when we look at Christ, we look at God, but we also look at what it means to be human, we can't help but be transformed and changed by that. And so not only is God mirrored in Christ, but Christ is mirrored in us. That it's not just contemplation, it's not just us looking at the face of Christ, but it's also looking at Christ in one another and within ourselves. When we look at each other, we see the fingerprint of God. And this is what Paul is saying in this verse, to contemplate the Lord's glory is as much about looking at him as it is about looking at our community, contemplating one another, seeing the evidence of God as it changes and transforms each and every one of us. 
I promise you, if you get to know the stories of the people sitting next to you, you will have a more dynamic encounter with the real and living God than any book that you could possibly read. You want to see the evidence of a real and living God. Receive the invitation to community, to look deeper, to go deeper with one another. For me, this is the best evidence that God is real. And as we contemplate the Lord's glory, as we see it within each of us, then glory becomes the evidence of God's work within each of our stories. As we each live out that I was once lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I can see. As we contemplate that, as the prayer of our heart becomes to be in community with one another, we see the fingerprint of God at work in all of us. And so we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, the third part, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. The word here for being transformed is metamorphose, or as we use often in, in English, metamorphosis. It literally, literally means to change shape. So we are changing shape into the image of Christ with an ever-increasing glory. And what is glory? Again, the manifest presence. Glory is us going, where's God? Oh, there he is. That's his presence. That's what God looks like. That's his shape. And so the more that we contemplate Christ, the more we're changed to look like him, and the more we become the glory of God, the more we become his shape, the more we become his evidence. And I love that the, the language that Paul uses here is a present process. We are being transformed, not once upon a time we were transformed, or maybe someday if you're really lucky and you work hard enough, you'll be transformed. But right now, as you contemplate Christ, as you focus on him, you are being transformed. And that ever-increasing language, a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. Because being the image of Christ, and that's our identity, the image bearers of God. Go back to Genesis 1 to see evidence of that. It's not something that we earn. It's not try really hard to be more like Jesus. You know, it's not, here's the list of the attributes of Jesus, and I need you to check all these off by the end of the day. It's not something that we earn, but it's something that we are gifted from above, that we are being transformed, not that we transform. And I think in this, there's some sort of a cooperation. There's an interplay. We call it a synergism, where we work with God to see spiritual formation happen in our lives. That God is the one who unveils our faces and our response is to contemplate Christ. And as we contemplate him, he transforms us. And there's this relationship with God, this back and forth that becomes our salvation. We cannot save ourselves on our own. But I also don't believe that it's 100% the work of God and that we're just puppets on a string being, being told what to do and blindly following along, but it's that we respond to the allure of Christ. So when we contemplate, when we open up, he begins that transformation when we have that posture of open-handedness. Transformation occurs where divine grace 
meets our human freedom and our willingness to say yes to the processes that God has us on. And that's intimidating for some of us. I think many of you here right now know that God is inviting you into a new season of growth, into some uncharted territories, into some new ways of thinking and new ways of believing, and you're intimidated because you were just getting comfortable with the place you were just at. But guess what? God is not a God of comfortability. Amen? God is a God of transformation. And your comfortability or uncomfortability have to be reorganized and realigned. And, and the definitions of where you place your confidence and where you find your comfort have to change accordingly. But I promise you when, you, when you let go and you open up and you allow God to invite you into those new places, that grace begins to work in you and the transformation occurs. But it can only happen when you open up your freedom in being human. And so your identity is not just a fixed achievement, but a dynamic process. As I already mentioned, your identity isn't an achievement at all, okay? Those of you who are threes on the Enneagram, hear me now. You cannot achieve your identity. Some of you taskmasters need to hear me in this. You cannot achieve an identity. It's not something that you earn. It's not something you tick off the boxes. You don't go to a workshop and then you get a certificate at the end of, well done, my good and faithful servant. Your identity isn't something you can achieve. It's something that you're gifted with. But your identity is also not fixed. It's not one and done. It's not something that's just handed to you and you put it in the back of your mind on the shelf and, and all is well and done. It's something that deserves to be cultivated and groomed and lived into. You know, several years ago, I spoke on the prodigal son, and we kind of see this with the older son. While intellectually he would affirm that he's a son, his attitude, his words, and his actions betrayed that he didn't really believe that he was his son, that he thought he, he was kind of on the level with the servants in the house, that he had to work to earn his father's favor. And I think he believed that maybe like some of us do, that we have you know, we've achieved this level of sonship or being the image of God, but then we kind of sink into these other ways of being Christian. But that we have to cultivate our identity, and our identity is much a process as it is a declaration. And it's dynamic, it's constantly growing. We're understanding more and more who we are and really what it means to be the image of God. And that means that we have to be willing to be surprised and delighted by what that looks like. And so contemplation gives us focus. The more we abide in Christ and contemplate with one another, the more that we grow. And it's that kind of focus on Christ that gives direction and trajectory for our growth. We have to ask ourselves continually, where are my eyes fixed? Where are my eyes fixed? I can look around at all sorts of different things going on in the world, in my own life, even within my own community. But where are my eyes actually fixed and focused as my confidence, as, as my primary focus in life? Because perhaps my eyes are, are fixed on something from the past where I find my confidence in an old memory, an old relationship, an old accomplishment. This is why so many of us struggle with guilt and shame because we focus on the past. That's where we fix our eyes. Maybe it's the future. What's going to happen? Is this thing going to become real? What am I going to accomplish? And our eyes are fixed 
on a tumultuous future. This is why so many of us experience anxiety, because our eyes are fixed on the future. Maybe our eyes are fixed on other people and the relationships that we have in our lives. But we know that even those things change. But we fix our eyes on Christ. Whatever comes our way, whatever has happened in our past, whatever is to happen in our future, whatever our relationships around us speak to in varying degrees of confidence and consistency, we know that he is always there and is always with us. So not only does Christ give us that focus, but it gives us growth. In our journey, our understanding of Jesus will continually evolve, and so will our understanding of what it means to be, his, to be the children of God, to be the image of Christ. Those things will constantly evolve. I think the beautiful irony of our identities is that as soon as we think that we've got our handle on it, it slips through our fingers. As soon as we think we know what we're talking about, we've lost it. Because it's as much in the seeking as it is in the finding. It's as much in the knocking as it is in the door being opened to us. And that's where our identity resides, and that's why it's so much a process. One of my heroes, Brian Zahn, talks about how it's very popular in our current day and age to talk about deconstruction. A lot of Christians, especially in my own generation, who have been disenfranchised from the way that modern church has sold us short when it comes to what faith actually is, enter into these processes of deconstructing the way that we've been taught to believe. Not only what we believe, but how we believe. And there is something beautiful and important to that process of deconstruction. To, to break it down, to say, what am I really saying when I say this? What am I really doing when I do it like this? But if we take on deconstruction as our identity, then we can't help but take any kind of idea that is offered to us and dissolve it in front of us. And so we never find a place to put our confidence. And we become addicted to the process of deconstructing of breaking things down, of dissolving them in front of us, and we become the eternal skeptic. And what he said is, what if we change our language from deconstruction to restoration? Do you remember a couple of years ago that very tragic scenario where there was a lady restoring a picture of Jesus? <laughs> Do you remember that? I wish I had a picture of it to show you. Um, restoration, when it comes to painting, is that over years and centuries, dust and grime build up on a painting and there are people that train their entire lives to come in and to clean up an image, to, to, to scrape away all of the scum and the muck and the mire and the centuries of buildup to reveal the image that was there the whole time but was just begging to be revealed. And I love that image of restoration. I think so many of us need to enter into the process of restoration where we take centuries of bad theology, where we take decades of bad Christian practice, where we take bad ways of doing church, and we scrape off all of the muck and the mire that have obscured his beautiful face and come back to what Christ has always looked like. And it's then and only then will we find the beautiful image of Christ, that he is beautiful. And so few of us can argue with his beauty. But we need to rescue that original image. I love that the writer of 1 John kind of corroborates with what Paul has written. He says this, 1 John 3, 2, Dear friends, now that we are children of God, okay, current moment identity, now that we are children of God, 
and what we will be has not yet been made known. Not very strange. What we will be has not yet been made known. There's still more to come. There's still more to happen. We haven't arrived, and that's okay. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now we see only as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. This process of transformation will take the rest of your life and then some. But if we are made in his image and he is that big and that beautiful, how could we possibly sum that up in a morning or a year or five years or 10 years or a decade or the, maybe the rest of eternity? How could we possibly sum that up? And so we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory in the fourth and final peace, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we see that Christ gives us the focus for our growth. He opens us up to that journey. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, becomes the authority to walk us along that journey that we have to trust in God's processes, even if we can't always see them. I know for many of us that when we've engaged in this way of beginning to, to re-examine why we believe what we believe, a lot of us have had curses spoken over us where people treat it as if we're walking away from the faith altogether. And they say, well, in very patronizing terms, well, I'll pray for you. I hope you find your way again. And it feels unsettling to us because we say, I, I don't think that's what's happening. In fact, I'm, I'm experiencing God in ways that I never had before. I actually feel closer to him now than I did then. But just because it doesn't look the way that perhaps you were raised, that your, that your tribe told you that you're supposed to talk about it or supposed to experience it. And we feel this disconnect because we're finding these new ways of encountering God, but our tribes are telling us that those aren't right. This is the place where we have to trust in God's processes, that God is the one that is drawing us deeper into the reality of who he is and is scraping back all of the old ways of thinking and doing in order to reveal the beauty of Christ that has been there the whole time. And I think the beauty of what Paul and the beauty of what the writer of John are saying is you know the outcome. You, you know what the end result is, and it's good by definition because God is good. And that's the beauty to me of the promised land, when God says, I'm with you. Whatever the promised land is going to look like, it's going to be good because God is good. The promised land will look far better than whatever you could possibly arrange in your mind, in what your expectations of it's supposed to look like. However you think the promises are supposed to be fulfilled, I promise you it will be better than what you can possibly imagine because of God's character, that he is good. And so our response is to today trust in the goodness of God. And wherever we end up, it's going to be good and it's going to surprise us. And what does that mean for our, prem our, our current moment when we speak of God's authority alone to do this in us. Jesus is big enough to incorporate all our stories, 
personalities and gifts. Several weekends ago, um, we had about 40 of our leaders come here for a retreat, and we focused in on this idea, and I actually believe it's something that God is going to be weaving into the DNA of our community over this next season. But we really took time as teams to examine our stories, to begin to ask questions about where we've come from and how we were formed in our families and in our tribes growing up in the way that we understood who we are and the way we understood what God is like. We talked about our personalities. Where do we find energy? What are the things that motivate us in life? How do we respond to conflict? What are the things that make us alive? We talked about our gifts that we spent so much on last year. What are the ways that God has uniquely equipped each one of us to be his faithful presence in the world? And one of the things that I came back to time and again in that is that God wastes nothing, but he redeems everything. And so many of us have been told that there are certain elements of our stories or our personalities that are going to be scrapped. They're going to be thrown into the fire because they don't meet what God needs. And the fear becomes that if we are to become more like Christ, there's a uniformity, that we're all going to look just the same, that we have to give up the things that we're passionate about. <coughs> Excuse me. Speaking of passion, I, we're gonna, we have to give up the things that we're passionate about. We have to give up the things that we love in order to fall in line. Because the image of Christ that was painted for us was a very small Jesus who doesn't have a lot of time for our stories, doesn't have a lot of time for our personality types, maybe doesn't even have a whole lot of time for the gifts that we bring to the table. But when we contemplate the image of Christ as 100% God and 100% the human experience, then we see that he's big enough to welcome in all of the broken bits of your story, all of your weird little quirks and idiosyncrasies that make up who you are uniquely and to redeem those things, to bring them into alignment to his purposes, and to, to make a more beautiful image of Christ when we come together. I believe more and more day by day that as we come together as the people of God and we share our stories with one another, as we share our personalities and our gifts with one another, the image of God is fuller because of that. And we have unity because of our diversity. And that's something that we can have confidence in tonight. That Jesus is inviting us to own our stories, to own our personalities, to own our gifts, to offer them to him and allow him to transform those things so they become more his glory. So I want to invite you to stand. We're going to worship. This is why I'm so excited about this series. Because I think for many of us, it's going to bring us freedom that we don't have to scrap bits of who we are in order to be Christ-like. But actually to encounter God in new and refreshing ways that carry us into the journey of looking more like Him, where it redeems those things. And we begin to offer who we are to one another as the gift that it really is. And as we receive the gift of Christ from one another, it changes us. It transforms us and we look more and more like him day by day. And so let us pray and worship the beautiful face of Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you 
I thank you, I thank you that we have unveiled faces, that there's nothing that stands between us and you. Like our ancestors, unlike our ancestors in Israel, we don't have to be afraid anymore of the God on top of the mountain because we've met that God and he looks like Jesus. And in that invitation to intimacy, Lord, I pray that we would find transformation, that our confidence would be in you, that we would let go of all of the things that we hold on to so tightly to make sense of the world, that as we focus more and more on you, on your face, you give us the confidence to walk through this life to pick up the things you're inviting us to pick up and to lay down the things that you're inviting us to lay down, but to know that the outcome of all of this is good because you are good and you turn curses into blessings. And Lord, lead us into that sure future where we see you face to face. And there are no more tears. There's no more apprehension because we are fully and completely who you have called us to be. God, guide us on this journey in all confidence and boldness. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.